Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit will speak to us today, that you'll touch our hearts, that we will see that it is possible that we can win together. Help us to believe it, to want it, and to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Something I mentioned last Sabbath, and I want to bring it up again. Step one in accomplishing any great work for God is to recognize the greatness of God. Why is that step one? Well, because when we understand the greatness of God, when we feel the awesomeness of God in our souls, it changes us. It changes the way we behave. Yes, it can be called the fear of the Lord, but it's so much more than a a narrow terror regarding punishment. In fact, the Bible says the fear of the Lord, the recognition of the greatness of God, is the beginning of wisdom. When we recognize the greatness of God, it changes our behavior because life, after the recognition of the greatness of God, life is no longer a confusing series of seemingly arbitrary choices where we have little guidance as to what we should do. But instead, when we recognize the greatness of God, our lives, every minute of our lives, become an act of worship that we are offering up to this God who has given us life. But not only did he give us life, so much more than even that, after we had sinned and fallen away, he also became redeemer for us. When we recognize the greatness of God, it turns out that there is now becomes little need in our lives for long and detailed laws because we aren't looking for ways to get away from stuff and, and so the law has to hem us in. No, when, when we recognize the greatness of God, there's, there's little need for detailed laws and little need for enforcement authorities because when our lives are lived as worship, we begin by nature to desire the things that God has commanded. The law moves from being something written on stone tablets to being a reality written in our hearts. From something that exists as an external power outside of us to new life within. People who recognize the greatness of God can live together in the honor system. I'll say more about that in a moment, but first an example. I was blessed as a child to spend my early elementary school days from first grade through sixth grade living in Collegedale, Tennessee. It was the early 70s, and in those days, if you lived in Collegedale, Chattanooga was still a world away. Ultawa was just a funny name. The McKee Baking Company just had one plant, and Four Corners was just a drugstore at a four-way stop. Now, this has meaning if you've ever lived in that area, but if you haven't, let me break down to you what I'm saying. Collegedale was isolated in those days. Now, one could argue that wasn't good. No contact, no witness. 
Well, I don't know about that. I suppose you could definitely make a case. But here's what I do know about those days. It sure was a good place to grow up. I know it wasn't perfect. But let me tell you what normal was for me growing up. We never locked our cars. And as I say that, if you forgot to lock yours, maybe you better run out there and take care of that. We never locked our cars at home in the driveway, at the church where dad was the pastor, or at the village market where we got our groceries. And in fact, you could leave your keys on the seat and your sunglasses on the dash, and you could count on them being there when you came back out. Not only did we not lock our cars, we didn't lock our houses either, not even at night, not even when we went on vacation. We kids, and remember I was between the age of 6 and 12, could go safely just about as far as we could ride our bikes. And moms didn't worry about us or where we were unless we got home late for supper. And then they weren't worried about where we'd been. They were a little wondering why we weren't home on time. I remember that we kids in the neighborhood there would from time to time on a weekend night go out into the woods somewhere around the house and we would camp overnight without any adults with us to keep us safe. And at the time we were doing this, the oldest of us was maybe 13, maybe 14. It was safe. Now, I'm not naive. I realize not everyone in the community was engaged in a perfect walk with Jesus. Yet at that time, there was enough recognition community-wide of the greatness of God on the part of the whole community that the spillover effect on how I as a child was able to live my life was profound. I sure would love to live like that again. I'd never lock myself out of the house. I'd never lock my keys in the car. While my kids have never lived in a truly dangerous neighborhood, their experience has not been anything like mine was. The point I'm trying to make is this. When we all recognize the greatness of God, and we all live our lives as a worship to Him, our community life is very good. And when it is, we are winning together. But when some start living selfishly, we all lose. Which brings us to a Bible story I want to consider this morning, a story that immediately follows the one we considered last Sabbath. Just a quick review. Last Sabbath, we talked about Joshua and Jericho and the battle and how, how God gave Joshua the plan for attacking the city, and then Joshua shared it with the military leaders, and then the leaders told the army, and even though it seemed like a crazy idea, they all bought in. And the Lord gave them a great victory. But trouble happened after the victory. Joshua 7, verse 1, 
But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. You see, God said before the fight, I'm going to give you this victory, and you will show your thanks for the victory by dedicating all of the spoils to God. Much of it was to be burned, and what wasn't was to be given to the priests and the Levites for the temple, for the, for the sanctuary. But Achan, after the victory, had a different idea. And he figured he could get away with it, and nobody would even know. And in truth, he would have gotten away with it because no human caught him. Yet God was unwilling to let it go this time. Which kind of reminds me of another Bible story, only this one's in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. And we'll, we'll come back to this story in Joshua in a minute. But this other story is found in the book of Acts. And for context, I want to start at the, at the end of Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, I grew up in a pretty awesome community, but this one was even cooler. This was amazing what was going on. There was faith and love and confidence and charity across the whole community. But if you've ever been a part of a community like this, you know it takes a lot of trust for this to keep going. And it doesn't take too many instances of dishonesty and deception before the whole system starts to unravel. I don't know when the change occurred, but today, most people in Collegedale, they lock their cars and their houses. Acts 4, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So in this community that had developed, there was high regard for those who were giving for the sake of others. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but the desire to be highly regarded in the community can sometimes lead to disaster. Acts 5, verse 1, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now it is important that we understand what is happening here because the Lord is about to intervene in this story in a most dramatic way. 
The important concept you need to understand is this. It isn't wrong to sell property and only donate a portion of the value of the sale. That's not the point of the story. But it is wrong to sell property in the context of where others are selling property and then bring the money in a manner that suggests you're contributing it all when in fact you've kept some for yourself. The problem in the story is not narrowly the act of only donating a part, but instead the deception in which Ananias and Sapphira are engaged is the problem because they are implying that they're doing what everyone else is doing when in fact they're not. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like this? You want to be regarded as a Barnabas without actually having to do what Barnabas does? Verse 2, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. This is what happens when we lose sight of the greatness of God. When we try to gain honor, but in trying to gain honor, we lose our honor. Yet mostly, when we do these things, the immediate judgment of God does not fall upon us like it did upon Ananias, and shortly, if you keep reading, like it will upon Sapphira. Most times, the Lord allows us to deceive each other and even to deceive ourselves into believing we are getting away with our deception. But here's the thing. We never get away with it completely. Because once we start deceiving each other, suspicion begins to grow in the community that there are deceivers in our midst. And what do we do when we begin to become suspicious of each other? Well, we pull back a bit. We're not quite so open next time. And when we leave our house, We start locking that door behind us, don't we? I'm not going to make a sacrifice if no one else is doing it. The honor system gets broken. And instead of openness and generosity and kindness and love, we suddenly find ourselves living closed lives consumed by suspicion and fear of each other, and finally we find ourselves living in isolation and loneliness. This is the exact opposite of winning together. So there were key times in history where the Lord was determined to not let this happen in the community, and the early church was one of those times. 
And the days of Achan were another of those times. Joshua 7, verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Jerusalem, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. When we lose sight of the greatness of God, we stop winning together. And we only start truly winning together again when we own our deceptions when we repent, and when we change our ways. So where am I going with this? Well, this is the first concluding point. Throughout history, God doesn't usually deal with dishonesty as dramatically as he did in these two stories. I suppose that ought to be a comfort for us as we sit here and ponder all the times we've been dishonest with each other. But just because we don't fall down dead when we scorn the greatness of God doesn't mean we get away with it. Maybe we keep living, but with every dishonest act, with every misleading word, every time we put ourselves ahead at the expense of others, every time we do these things, we chip another piece off the beautiful statue that we could be. We let a little more air out of that hot air balloon that's supposed to be causing us to soar. Why can't we ever get this basket off the ground? We keep letting the air out. Every time we do these things, we put another scar on the body of Christ until what we become hardly looks like Jesus at all. 
And what becomes of us is the opposite of winning together. We become like Israel in front of I. Taking Jericho should have been impossible, but because God was with them, Israel won easily. Taking I should have been no problem, but because of selfishness and dishonesty, God was left behind and Israel was routed. It's not even really fair to say they did it because really it was Achan. But that's the thing about winning together. You don't truly win together unless everybody's part of the win together. So don't lose sight of the greatness of God because when we do, even if it's only a few of us, we don't win. So what's the formula for God's people for winning together? Number one, always remember the greatness of God. Number two, live in awe of God's mighty power and His goodness and His love. Number three, be honest with God's family, the church. And number four, love God's family, the church. That's how we win together. It's not complicated. So that is the spiritual lesson that I want you to learn and take home with you today. But before we end, there's one practical application that I want to make as well. And that's our Building Boldly for Jesus project. This project needs to be for us a Jericho experience, not an I experience. But the power to make it one or the other is completely in our hands. Are we generous enough to make it happen? Are we committed to each other enough to make it happen? Do we have sufficient confidence in our leaders? The pastors, the lay leaders, ADCOM, building committee, church board, church business meeting, because in all of these settings, we have met multiple times to talk about this project and pray about this project and have been convicted every time with 100% support that this is what God would have us do. Do we trust our leaders enough to get behind them? We are well able to win if we're all willing to participate. Now, I want to ask Alicia to join me up here for a minute, and I'm very pleased she's able to be here today because I want... Because I want to let her share what she was saying to me to remind you why we're doing this project. Hello, church family. I'm so happy to be here today. Lately, there have been two major things on my husband's mind, me and the building project. And a couple nights ago, maybe five or six, we were laying in bed and talking, and he was talking about the building project, and 
He was telling me about the sermon that he had done because I wanted so badly to come to church the last couple weeks and I haven't been able to. And he was telling me about the sermon that he would do this week. And I marveled again at his, um, just his biblical knowledge. He has such a breadth of biblical knowledge and his ability for clear thinking and analyzing and just thinking about um, his love for this church. And then one of the things I said is, I really want um, to make sure that you hold the vision of why we're doing this project. Keep the vision in front of our church family. And um, he asked me to expand on that a little, and I told him what I was thinking. And he must have liked it because he said, you need to tell the church that. And um, would you do that next week? And I thought, have not been able to get off the couch or the bed for many days. But if God wants me to and he gives me the energy, then I will. And then I wasn't worried because I knew probably I wasn't going to be able to do it. <laughs> and that if God gave me the energy, he would, he would give me the words. This building project, as you know, is not just about new walls and carpet and space, although it will be a very, very beautiful space. It's about people, and it is an investment in our families and in our future, not just the future of Forest Lake Church, but of our country and the world because we need to never forget that we are only one generation away from Christianity dying out if we don't pass it on. And it's especially an investment in our children. Our children are so precious. We cannot overestimate the value of these little people in the eyes of heaven. God knows how precious they are. He is so in tune with their prayers that Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father. They get FaceTime with the Father. Original meaning of FaceTime. But we can be really short-sighted about the value of children. They interrupt grown-up activities. They are not impressed with our posturing. They run in front of the congregation. <laughs> they come in late. They take so much time to really engage in. But Jesus, who had the most important purpose ever, he had the most important mission. He had three and a half years to accomplish it. He was never too busy for children. In fact, he was indignant when his disciples did not see their important and tried to stop them from coming. So let's invite them, church. 
Let's make our church inviting to children. Let's let the parents know that we care about how long it took to plan those outfits, to get the baths on Friday night, to get up early enough to get them breakfast, to pack a snack bag, to pack a bag that we hope will keep them busy enough during church. And that we know how difficult it is to get here. And we're going to do everything possible to make it inviting and fun and memorable. The Bible tells us that when, when children come, they bring Jesus with them. The Bible tells us they will teach us how to appropriately relate to Jesus and the Father. That they will show us what the kingdom of heaven is like. They inhabit it now if they've been invited and they are its future. It has been proven over and over that it is statistically unlikely that they will come as teens or as an adult if they don't come as children. Because God is not the only one who understands the value and the latent power in children. Satan is very clear on their power. He has many industries built on the mission of stealing away their affections, their thoughts, and their minds. Movies and games, songs and stories, multi-billion dollar multimedia ways to warp their affections, destroy their identities, harden their hearts, sear their consciences, to teach them despair, to teach them trust wrong, wrong is right, and to sympathize and idolize evil figures. And in a country that has been convinced for decades at least that there is no real being called Satan, Satan is very busy and he has become increasingly bold. While adults are too busy to raise their own children, Satan is inviting the little children to come unto him in every way he can. As I don't know if you got this news story, but this point is evidenced in the public mounting and display of a huge bronze statue in Detroit in 2015. And this statue is a representation of Satan, seated on a throne like he always wants to be, with a goat's head and an upside-down star with a circle, the, the pentagram on top, with a very attractive, muscly male body. And the most chilling thing is that on the right and the left of him are two children gazing up adoringly, a little boy on his right and a little girl on his left. And just in case this picture causes you alarm, the satanic priestess, who was the spokesperson at that event, would like to further deceive you by saying that this statue represents a celebration of opposites and an embracing of differences, that it's about hope. 
She also mentions that they do not promote a personal belief in Satan. In place of the visual I just painted, I want to offer you this. This beautiful painting is made more amazing by the fact that the little boy pictured here is one of our own. His name was Johnny. And Nathan Green based the painting of the little boy in Jesus' arms on Johnny Blair. The Blair family understands the importance of little children. Pastor Barb has told me the story of a very powerful leader in the, punit, the community, the former president and CEO of Avenus Health Systems, who spent his weekdays with very powerful people. And his Sabbaths, not on the platform or on the front row, but in the mother's room, because little Johnny couldn't sit in the church. I didn't know that when I pictured that painting and put it in my kids' room, not the painting, a reproduction. I don't know, church, what we could spend our energies on in the coming year that would be more important than winning the hearts and minds of our children. I don't know what we could spend our energies, our money, our time. What could you spend your money on this year that would be more important than making a beautiful space at our church for them to come? A place that will give them foundational early memories of happy, fun times with mom and dad in church. Of times singing to Jesus. We don't want them just to believe we want them to believe in Jesus. We want their first song, the deepest song in their heart, the one they'll go to when they're 99, the one they'll go to when they're really sick after chemo, to be, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. We want their hearts to be opened to his love and their minds open to the awe and wonder of such a powerful creator God and yet how safe they are because that's their heavenly daddy. A place where they won't wonder why their bathroom at home smells better than the bathroom from them at church, but where they will be wowed by the things of God where their first stories will be true ones, like this. Jesus called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Did you catch that last sentence? When we welcome children, we welcome Jesus. And couldn't we use even more of Jesus in this place? Don't you want our children to have Jesus? They need him now. 
I'm not sure it's ever been a harder time to be a child. They will need him as they grow up because life is beautiful, but it can also be really brutal sometimes. And they will love spending eternity with him. As most of you know, I've been fighting breast cancer. And I guess it's been pretty hard. But I'm telling you the truth that even on the sickest, worst nights, I cannot escape the fact that I am so blessed. I have a husband who loves me. I have a God who's looking out for me. I have amazing, helpful children. I have the sweetest, best prayer friends in the world, the best congregation in America who prays for me, sends meals and gifts. Every person, my work environment, my work is supporting me. My students are texting me encouraging notes. Anybody I've been slightly kind to any time in my life has contacted me and has blessed me sevenfold. Strangers have been kind to me. It has been a miraculous thing to witness. And I am really clear, church, that that is not because of me. That is because of the God who loves me. Every good thing comes from God. And every good thing I have is because of Jesus. I'd like to end by telling you of an amazing surprise my family did for me last night. So I don't know if you know that Aaron is in Collegedale, that um, Nathan is at Andrews, and that Gable, who is at Southern, is now back. He's staying home and helping his mom, which all of them wanted to do and offered to do. And Ariel, of course, is still home with me. And so Jeff, uh, last night, said to me, um, Ariel and Gable are going to go get sweet frogs. And they were gone a while, but I had somebody there visiting me. And then he said, okay, you need to close your eyes. They're bringing you something. And I'm thinking flowers. But it's taking a long time. So I'm thinking a small llama or an alpaca. I don't know. And so I'm being very good, take off my glasses because I really can't see anything without them. And I'm waiting. And they're being very quiet, but I can hear rustling. And I said, sounds like people I love. And when I opened my eyes, This is what I saw. This is Team Patterson with a lovely new addition, right? And this is Marissa. Marissa and Ariel, turn around and show them your, your addition. <laughs> and I tell you, I would have wept. I, something in me kept wanting to weep, but I was so delighted and happy to have them home. I couldn't. And then I would feel like weeping. And then I would just, I, my heart was so thrilled. And I thought this morning, how can you go to church with a lovely wig on when your family has cut their heads? <laughs> so, I remember when Will shaved his head in solidarity for his brother. You know what this is. This is a sign of solidarity. And this is a sign of shamelessness right here. Because apparently, not only do we not 
get to pick the hair we're born with, we don't get to pick how we go bald. Because I like a little hedgehog. I want it to be like one of those beautiful, soft as a baby bottoms heads. I'm not. But this is not about me. This is about Jesus. Jesus who loves us when we look our worst. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of our souls. And this was like such an amazing sign of solidarity. This is winning together. How can I lose? And I so do not want you, church member, if you're visiting, we love you, and this is not about you. When that building goes up and that space is there, when you walk through it, I want you to be on the winning team. I want you to say in your heart to your Jesus, I gave $5 a month, I gave $10 a month, I gave 50, I gave 100, whatever it was. And you will know, you go by one of those, it's pretty yellow colors and you'll you know, feel something shiny and say, I had a part in that. And you'll see the shiny faces of those children and you'll say, Jesus, I got a little piece of this. I don't want you to be left out. And when I invite you to do what I'm going to invite you to do next, I want you to remember the stories Jeff has told you, and I want you to remember God loves a cheerful giver, and we are not here to judge you. We are not your judge. And we love you no matter what you choose to do in the next second. But if you want to be on the winning team for our building project, I'm going to invite you to stand right now. And if you just love Jesus and you want to stand and you're visiting, you can join us too and be part of our family. And now I just wonder if we could sing a song that I think all of us know that has the most brilliant theology that we will ever need. Jesus loves me, this I know. Jesus loves me, this I know. so beautiful. Amen. Amen. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. By God's great grace and power, let's keep winning together. <laughs> 